This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Happy New Year, everyone. It's December 30th, 2019, two days before January 1, 2020, and we will embark on the new year. I'm in the office today working on some of our strategic plans, buttoning up some things, and just brainstorming some ideas, working with the team today, and excited to get the new year rolling. On today's podcast, I have for you Seth Herschel. Seth is the Chief Development Officer for Salsa Fresca. Salsa Fresca is a tenant of ours in Beach Shopping Center in Peekskill, New York. And I think you're gonna learn a lot of interesting tidbits on this episode about how a QSR brand got started, how it ended up turning into a dominant regional player, and their plans for the future of how to grow this nationally. So we're gonna talk about the story of their location in Bedford Hills, New York, but I think you're gonna get an overall high-level perspective on a growing QSR chain that is about to push the pedal to the metal to go national. So looking forward to it. Everyone have a great new year and enjoy the episode. Thanks. Seth, you're the founder, correct? I'm one of the founders. I'm not the CEO. I'm really the development officer. Okay, you're the development officer and one of the founders. And so how many founders are there? There's three. So it's myself, Mark Miles, who I believe you've met, and John Tucker. And Mark is effectively COO. He's really running the day-to-day operations. You know, the district managers report to him, the general managers report to district managers, and down the line. And John Tucker is really the chief marketing officer. He really maintains the, the brand, the vision, the standards, the look, the feel, website, you know, social media, etc. And I'm really chief development. And as a group, we act as a board. So we don't have a named CEO, but we work together to make decisions that a CEO would make. And then we have a fourth partner who's really an, an equity arm who has helped extend debt and equity to the business really from the beginning, from our second store. The first store, the three of us as founders bootstrapped and built together. We learned a lot. And then starting with the second store, we brought on this, this equity partner who's been with us since and has helped us get to 10 stores. And are all the 10 stores today corporate? Yes. And so you guys have 10 stores through you. What's your background that you decided to get in the QSR business? My background is really in management consulting. So, you know, before Salsa Fresca, I was, I had a software company. Before that, I worked in a management consulting company in the city called Sapient. And it was funny, I was just thinking as we're rolling into 2020 and another decade, I was reflecting on a lot of my initial work at a school doing Y2K work, you know, and that's when I was in management consulting working at Sapient and we were trying to solve all the world's problems as the millennium was rolling over and everybody thought their systems were going to come screeching to a halt. So we did a lot of testing around that. All that really translates to is a background in understanding systems and analysis And I did that for almost 10 years between management consulting and having my own software company. And I started to invest in operating businesses in the form of health clubs initially. 
And then a friend presented me with this idea of salsa fresca. It was John Tucker. He had just come back from San Diego. He had spent six years living out there and enjoying the regional cuisine. He's a Westchester guy originally and came back and said, you know, something big is missing here. And it looks like a burrito or a taco. And everyone here is still eating deli sandwiches and Chinese food and pizza. And we need another food group. And so he saw that I had the software company and some health clubs and said, why don't we try? Why don't we try this? I have an idea. And he had the name Salsa Fresca. He had the initial menu. He had some pictures of some storefronts and some things he liked from San Diego. And at the time, Chipotle really wasn't here. You know, the Nationals really hadn't made it to the Northeast. You know, they, they might have had a store or two, an outpost in Manhattan, and that's about it. You know, I really had no business being in the QSR world. And neither did John, other than he had a passion for it. You know, he had worked in a restaurant or two as a kid, but we didn't have the specific background. We understood what it took to build a business. I certainly did. I had done it a few times. And we sat down and we said, let's give it a shot. Let's build a store. Let's bring in the expertise we need. So we interviewed and hired someone from the Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park. And he had spent years in Mexico and had the, the San Diego kind of Mexicali vision we were looking for and helped us put John's ideas to recipes and paper. And we opened up our first store in Dutchess County in Millerton, New York in 2009, about 10 years ago now. So we learned a lot from that store and we knew that we were opening it in a pretty small town. We all happened to live near there at the time. So we were able to kind of have eyes and ears on the store and make changes that were necessary as we watched customers experience the product. And we learned a lot. And about two years later, we felt like we were ready to open a more mainstream location. And that's when we started focusing on Westchester County. And our first store in Westchester was in Bedford Hills, New York. And that continues to be one of our top performing stores. That's where I live. So that store is in my main shopping district. And I actually grew up around here. So I feel like I really knew the lay of the land and where we should be or shouldn't be and help define that initial site. And it was important to us because that store had to outperform our original store. It had to show that the concept had real legs and it was kind of make it or break it for us. You know, the original store did fine, but it was in a small town in Dutchess County. So it was really just carrying itself. And we called it a proof of concept and basically said, you know, if Salsa Fresca can make it in this small town with a population of 3000 people, it can make it anywhere. And we'll learn our lessons and, and sharpen our teeth on this store. And then when we're ready, we'll go a little more big time. And big time for us, you know, at the time was something like Westchester County, even Northern Westchester County. So that Bedford Hills store was important to us. And basically I thought then, and I still think now that food attracts food and being near other popular food businesses is a good place to be. So I identified the shopping plaza in our town that had the go-to pizza parlor and the go-to bagel shop. And that's ultimately where we chose to locate Salsa Fresca, non-anchored plaza, but across the street from the best price supermarket in the area, which really acted as our virtual anchor. That was the, the first, I'd say, real store, the first store beyond a proof of concept. And that acts as our oldest store now. When the lease renewal came up for our Dutchess County original proof of concept store, we did not renew. We effectively moved that store to another location. It had lived out its initial five-year cycle, and that was good for us. You know, we didn't, we didn't really need, we had proven the concept at that point and didn't need that store. 
So you went to Bedford Hills. You said food attracts food. And over the last decade, the restaurant industry has been on fire, right? In particular, QSR, there's this huge competitive landscape. Are we getting to a point where there's too much? I think certainly some segments are oversaturated and you're starting to see some consolidation or kind of a, you know, a race, race to the bottom, race to the top, whatever you want to call it. I think that sometimes it depends on the food type. It depends how much demand there is for the food type. I see a lot of niche food these days, you know, starting to see like Mediterranean QSR. And I happen to love Mediterranean food, but I'm not sure how often people eat Mediterranean food. You know, I'm not sure if it has the popularity to have longevity. And it's exciting. It's different. People think, oh, could this be the next big thing? Is this the next Chipotle? Is this the next Jersey Mike's? And my thinking on that is it's probably not. It's too much of a niche. It's interesting. Might work in urban centers, metro areas, but it's not going to work everywhere. But pizza works everywhere. Mexican food works everywhere. Sandwiches work everywhere. And then it's just a question of saturation. So as we see the retail landscape shifting, and as we see less retail and more food and more service, that's certainly a thought and a concern that we have. It seems like every time a retailer closes, more food service is coming in. But as a general rule, we still believe food attracts food. And if you have more food in one plaza or more food in in one outbuilding, more customers come to that building. There's more stomachs to feed. And it works. Rising tide lifts all boats. Exactly. So we're actually developing a small parcel for one of our upcoming stores in 2020, and we need a co-tenant. And we're actually targeting a food business as a co-tenant, which seems somewhat counterintuitive because you say, oh, gee, why are you bringing a competitor right next door? But we're obviously not bringing a Mexican food business next door. We're bringing a sandwich shop. And to us, it makes sense because now when a few kids get in the car leaving high school, you know, they say, where should we go? Well, they're going to come to our plaza because half of them can get Mexican food and half of them can get sandwiches and they can all go to one destination. You know, it's kind of what the mall used to be. Well, let's all go to the mall because we can all get what we want there. So we like being near food businesses and it's worked for us. So we continue to keep that, you know, as, as one of our imperatives, you know, we need parking, we need traffic generators. We need visibility. We love outdoor seating if we can get it. And guess what? We like being near other good food. You know, we still like being near Panera. If I can be in a plaza with Panera, I'm happy. It's my customer base. Somehow, whatever research they've done, wherever they've found locations, I look at my best performing stores and I can see a Panera from them. So when did you open the Bedford Hills location? That was 2012. So that was your your second location, you had proof of concept. And how did you decide on Bedford Hills? Was it just you wanted to go somewhere that you could touch and feel that was close to your home? How did you decide on Bedford Hills? Yes, that was part of it. Wanted to be able to have insight and operational control over the store, but also really wanted to know that we understood the market. It was a big commitment and investment for us at the time. And we didn't want to mess it up. So having it in my backyard, me being the real estate development guy, you know, I, I said to my partners, look, there's a gap in this market. This happens to be a good piece of real estate that opened up despite what it looks like and it's going to work. And the guys looked at me and everyone kind of felt like they were rolling the dice. And I said, I have confidence in it because I know it. I'm comfortable with it. 
And we still have those discussions depending on different markets we look at. But as we're growing out of our home base, those discussions get a, a little you know, fuzzier and fuzzier, which is why we're you know, trying to take the next step with our site analytics as well. So this happened to be my backyard. I knew where we should be. And I knew the co-tenants I wanted to be near as well. And I knew the visibility I needed on the road that we were locating on. You know, it's a relatively busy road where it's easy to get lost if you're in a bigger plaza. So we chose a smaller plaza where we could be closer to the road. We chose a business that happened to have some existing non-conforming signage that we'd be able to benefit from. You know, so our sign is bigger than everyone else's sign and bigger than you can get today. And we knew as a, as a new business in this market, we would need a lot of visibility. There was also some benefit to me being in the community, in the market. I'd be able to promote and advertise the benefit of this new local business more so than if it wasn't in my town. So there were, there were several benefits. They all kind of stacked up and we looked at each other and said, okay, well, let's make Bedford Hills our first location beyond the proof of concept. Wow. So th- th- there's a, a lot of takeaways there for me. So one... You know, clearly the local expertise being you live there is was paramount in the decision, right? And and, and knowing the the community and having the support of the community because you're a local entrepreneur that always bodes well for businesses. Two, really deciding that you wanted to be big fish, small pond instead of caught in a large center and benefiting off the co traffic to that. You wanted to be in a small center where you were visible, high traffic, and then. You said something that was, you know, fascinating, which was you actually sought out a location that had a grandfathered non-conforming sign. And so we have shopping centers all the time that if we were to build a new sign, it would be much smaller as municipal codes have changed, but the sign you have is grandfathered in. And so that actually played a part in the process of choosing the location. Yes. And it still does. You know, we talk about visibility and visibility is key. So we talk about the signage. We, we make signage part of our lease negotiation. We rule out locations because they don't have good visibility, either because they're buried in a center or they're buried in a corner of a center or because their signage is just substandard to what else is in the center or because there's no more pylon signage available at that center. So we're not going to get it if we, you know, we're going to get on a list and we say, well, that's not good enough for us. Guess what? We need, we need the pylon sign, even though we're only taking 2,000 or 2,500 feet. So Signage is important. That actually goes back to John Tucker, my partner. He had owned a sign company prior to founding Salsa Fresca and actually met him through owning my health clubs. He was my sign guy. He was the guy who would come out and replace the signs, put the pylon signs in the ground, do the in-store signage, etc. And he really has an artistic and marketing background. And he said, it's funny, you know, he said, I put signs up all day. And he said, when I put the sign up for a new business, I can tell you on that day whether the business will succeed or fail. And obviously, there's a lot that goes into that, whether it's where the business chose to locate, what the sign looks like, what the logo looks like, what colors they're using, his brief interaction with the business owner or manager. But he felt like he had a knack for that. And so he's always been an integral part of that process, defining whether our visibility is sufficient and what will salsa fresca look like? Does salsa fresca fit in this location? You know, we always do a series of comps to help visualize what stores will look like in specific locations. And he spends a lot of energy 
developing those comps and circulating them to our group. And that, that becomes part of our decision-making process, whether we want to proceed with a potential location. And so how big was this location? 1,600 feet. And so I guess things have changed a little bit, right? Because we, we did a deal and you're in our beach shopping center in Peekskill and that's a, a little bigger. That was your seventh location. When you decided, you know, what were some of the learnings you took from the Dutchess County location that you brought to Bedford Hills? What were some big takeaways that led to choosing the location that you chose in Bedford Hills? We had good visibility in Dutchess County, and that helped us. Even though we were in a tiny town, we were on a main thoroughfare at a stoplight, and we got a lot of traffic, you know, a lot of people who weren't even where that town wasn't even their destination, who were driving through the town, ended up becoming customers of ours. So we learned that location was key and visibility was key. It was a new development that we moved into. It was at basically the corner of Maine and Maine in this town on the main state thoroughfare that went through the town that acted as a north-south segue to other areas. So that's something we definitely learned with the first location. And John had spent extra time and energy on signage. We replaced additional storefront glass to get real visibility right into the store. We convinced the landlord to build a beautiful stone wall right in front of the building to really create this kind of gateway effect you know, to the property that made the whole property feel attractive. That all contributed to our success in that original proof of concept location. We learned a lot of things operationally inside the building in terms of how we serve the food, menu adjustments, seating, how many seats we needed, the flow of the interior space. And that helped us define what size box we were looking for. So the Bedford Hill store is actually smaller than we would have liked, but the location was so good that we were willing to make some compromises in terms of the store footprint. And what that resulted in is having less seats than we would ultimately like to have in our stores. So the Bedford location has 20 seats and our current standard is 40 seats and Bedford gets jammed up. You know, there's times where there's not enough seats in the lobby and people get their food to go. You know, I think people are flexible, especially in the QSR world. It's not like we have to seat them for them to buy our food, but it does, it does have an impact. And that's probably one shortcoming of the Bedford store is that it's too small. And what we learned from Bedford is that we need more seats. Guess what, guys? We need 40 seats come hell or high water. That's, that's a rule now. So what percentage in general of lawyer stores is, is come in, sit down, eat it versus take out? It varies based on the market, but generally speaking, we call it 50-50. Our breakdown between lunch service and dinner service is generally 50-50, and our breakdown between dine-in and take-out is generally 50-50. And the next, the next element of that is how much of our business is delivery and out the back door, you know, through various services like Uber, DoorDash, you name it. There's a bunch of services out there. They're all different in different markets as well, or customers using our own app or online menu services. So we see what the what our competitors and the, and the bigger players are reporting and targeting. And it sounds like overall, everyone's working towards this 10% threshold, that 10% of the business will be online in one way or another. And so we're, we're seeing five or 6% at this point, but it's funny. It used to be basically 0%. You know, it was 50 dine in, 50 dine out. And now we're seeing 50 dine in, maybe 45 dine out and five or 6% order out using third-party services or online services. That's fascinating. 
10 years ago, probably wouldn't have thought that. So that's really interesting. And this was, you know, you were in a small town in Dutchess County. Now you moved to Bedford Hills, obviously dominant location, really good market in Westchester County. Was there anything about this lease negotiation that were some lessons learned for you? Because really your second retail lease negotiation, you know, you guys have done now 10, you're, you guys were pros when we dealt with you in Peekskill on your seventh, but that being like your second, but in a major market, one of your, your first, was there anything unique about the lease negotiation that happened when you, you know, you said, this is the one we want to be in? I think we did a pretty good job negotiating. We probably, now we'd be asking for more TI and more free rent, you know, we'd be looking for more handouts than we were then. And I don't think we knew that we could ask those questions at the time. And we also didn't really have the leverage to ask the questions. You know, now that we're more of a regional player, multi-unit operator, we can ask for more than we could then. So part of that was because we didn't know. And part of it was because we probably weren't entitled to much of that. You know, we were really seen as a startup by that landlord. And fortunately, that landlord is local to the market. And they were excited about having a new food product in town. You know, sometimes landlords play a part in defining the landscape and a fabric of the community. And depending on how big or small the landlord is, they may or may not have an emotional stake in what they want to see in their properties. And this particular landlord really liked the idea of the product and said, hey, I'm going to work with you. You know, you're a local guy. I like this idea. Let's get it done. Awesome. So it's 1,600 square feet. What is your prototypical size today for 40 seats to get what do you need to be to get 40 seats? 1600 to 2000 is really our, what we're looking for. And sometimes we'll go a little bit above 2000. And this was your first location at your hometown. How does it do compared to the others? It does well. It's in our, our top quadrant of stores, depending on the year, it's right there in the top one, two or three units. You know, the store closing out 2019, looks like it's going to do about 1.3 out of, you know, 1600 feet. So it's like, $800 a foot. It's pretty good, pretty good math. And the store turns good margins as a result. You know, our cost of occupancy is something like 6%, you know, which is a number we like. Is that your target where you try to be like 6%? Technically eight. We'll go up to eight. Is $800 a foot, is that, is that the average today? No, I'd say six to 800 is a good number for us. You know, 800, 800 is, is towards the higher end. You know, Bedford is a, is one of our top performing stores. And it's a smaller store. So that kind of helps juice that, you know, sales per foot metric. Yeah, totally. What other metrics are you guys in, in the new world today? You mentioned you're trying to get to 10, you're at five to 6%, you know, online and you're trying to get to 10%. What other metrics are, are you focused on today? We're pushing catering. We put a food truck on the road last year. And that's part of our catering initiative. You know, it helps us market the catering. It also helps us pilot new markets. If we think we should be in a market, we might send the food truck to that market as an advance, basically assessment, trying to understand how excited people get about seeing a food truck in a market. Um, So we push catering. And that's another type of sales that can contribute beyond the store level. You know, that's not taking from our existing sales. it's It's adding sales to the store. So we hired a catering manager who was a GM at another QSR who's really got a head on his shoulders. We, we basically put him in charge of growing catering across the network and also developing and growing a food truck concept. So now we have a food truck on, you know, on the road. We're talking about adding a second food truck or at least a food trailer this coming year. 
And we've been growing our catering at a rate of about 40% per year you know, of the catering sales with the ultimate goal of getting catering to represent 10% of our overall sales, which is a, it's a lofty goal. I'm not sure we'll get to 10, but we're over five now. So it's a good number. Well, you guys do a good job. We just, we catered lunch with you guys here when we had everyone in for our Christmas party. So you guys did a good job. It was great. I'm happy to hear that. And thank you for supporting us. And so interesting perspective and story, how you chose to go to Bedford Hills over the last 10 years, you got up to 10 locations and now you're, I guess you're making a, a pivot. You want to start to become franchise? Yes. We want to continue to grow corporate stores. Our next goal is to get from 10 stores to 20 stores that we own. And at the same time, we want to start selling franchise units. So it took us about a year and a half and close to a quarter million dollars of investment to be ready to franchise. And that's from defining and locking up the intellectual property, which is part of the franchise process, to defining franchise agreements, franchise rules, modeling the franchising development process and what that would look like, defining how we would grow in different stages, developing operational manuals and protocols that we could actually hand to franchisees, you know, hand them a thousand page binder and say, this is how you open and operate a salsa fresca restaurant and defining all the supporting roles that we play in that process. And then papering all that over, submitting to the attorney generals of different states. There's a lot. It's a big process. And so we invested in that and we went through all that. And we hired an in-house franchise sales, basically manager. And that ended up not being the best fit for us. So there's a lot of different ways to franchise and there's different models on how to franchise. And some of those models contemplate that other people are selling your franchising for you. Some models contemplate that you're selling it in-house. Sometimes there's a hybrid. So in this case, we got all our ducks in a row. We hired someone to help us. That ended up not being the best approach for us. We've done some internal prospecting. You know, we have signs in our stores and I get phone calls and I talk to people and we know who we're looking for. We're ultimately looking for multi-unit operators who already are in the QSR business. We're not looking for mom and pops. You know, we're not, we're not tooled to help somebody in, you know, Western New York open up one store in Syracuse. We're looking for somebody who already has a network of 20 Wendy's, 30 Pizza Huts, where they have infrastructure, boots on the ground, experience, resources, capacity. And they're really just looking to diversify their portfolio of food businesses. Because to a lot of those guys, these are just widgets. You know, they have an infrastructure and they're looking for diversification. That's a, that's a big theme with multi-unit operators today. And they're looking for new, they're looking for different, and they're basically looking to leverage their platform and diversify at the same time. So that's the franchisee that we're looking for. And so we've actually just contracted with a sales agent who has experience with those particular multi-unit operators. They have a basket of goods. They've been selling some brands into an established network of multi-unit operators for years. They've been in and out of that network and those brands themselves. And they believe in our brand and they think that they can basically help us establish a footprint within some of these other multi-unit operators. So starting January 1st, we'll have this new sales agent representing us to help deploy a Salsa Fresca franchise network. 
Interesting. And it, and is that to scale faster? Is that why you do that instead of only doing corporate stores? Yeah. Listen, you know, that what we say internally is it's the best way to multiply Salsa Fresca by America. You know, we can't be everywhere. We can't be everything to everyone. We have local knowledge, which is great. We get our market, but other people get their markets better than we get their markets. We get our food. We have established a brand, a process, and a product. And we know our home market. Those are the things we're good at. We don't know the South Florida market like someone who's operating 50 units in South Florida. But we know our food and they can taste our food and say, gee, I really like this. I'd love to bring it to South Florida. And we say, okay, well, let's, let's do it together. Let's collaborate. And we think that's the best way to do it. It might take us 50 years to get to South Florida otherwise, growing organically. You know, I mean, like In-N-Out Burger hasn't made it to the East Coast yet, right? They're entering their third generation of operations. Makes sense. Pivoting a bit, though, if you're a multi-unit operator, this could be a plug or a tough question. You know, there's tons of competitors in your space, but there's, I guess there's three large national ones that are everywhere. There's more than three, but there's, you know, the ones people think of a lot are Chipotle, Moe's, and Qdoba. Moe's and Qdoba have franchise as well. Why Salsa Fresco over going to one of those two? Right. Good question. And it's one we're prepared to answer. So every business, every product has differences, right? And if the product stands, there's always room for more brands, more competition in a space. And I think a good example of that is hamburgers, right? We've had McDonald's and Burger King and a few others for years and years and years and years. And all of a sudden, you know, there's room for five guys. There's room for Shake Shack. There's always room for a better product. With Salsa Fresca, our product is fresh. Our product is made in our stores every day. Our salsas are made in our stores. Our braised beef is being cooked in our stores from chopping the meat to taking the braised pork and beef off the bones by hand. And we say it really starts and ends with the food. Our food product is excellent. Our freshness is paramount to our brand. We've developed our process in a way that dictates that all food is made fresh in store at the local level. There's no commissary model. There's no par cooking. There's no, there's no pre-cooking elsewhere. And that comes through in the food. And I dine at other fast casual Mexican restaurants. I like some more than others, but I'm confident that our food rises above. And I think that that's what wins at the end of the day. You know, our store design is nice. We have a commitment to the environment, which I think is, it's certainly important to us. And I think it's important to our consumers as well. You know, and we round out the brand with some other nice look and feel and nice things that we do, but it really is all about the food. And if our food is good and our food wins, then we don't have to worry about the competitors, whether they're major or minor competitors. Well, one of the things that kind of came to my mind as you were talking about that, and you mentioned the commissary. So I imagine you guys aren't going to ghost kitchens anytime soon, given the, the, the fresh that you're talking about in your food. You know, it's interesting. We talk about it just conceptually, but we like having customers. We like having presence. It contributes to our brand. We don't want to hide. We don't want to be in a warehouse setting, pumping food out some back door that goes into a car. You know, we, we want customers coming in the door, seeing our food being cooked, enjoying the experience and participating in that. So we certainly 
participate in the online food services and, and we're subscribed to the various apps to help benefit our customers who aren't able to come or prefer to have delivery. But that's not a direction that we plan on taking in terms of our primary focus. Got it. Well, listen, Seth, it's been great. The last part of this podcast is called Retail Wisdom. So three questions and they're fun questions. So one, the layup. Best piece of commercial real estate advice you can give anyone who's listening. All right. There's a lot that goes into defining commercial real estate, but I think it all it's really the old adage, location, location, location. It's that simple. It's worth spending the time, spending the money to be in the right location. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. Yeah, you definitely articulated that with Bedford Hills and why you chose that location. So clearly has led to your success in choosing the the right locations for Salsa Fresca. Next question, extinct retailer, you would love to see come back from the dead. Well, (laughs) for my kids, I would love to see Chuck E. Cheese come back because it's something I remember from my childhood as a fun place to go. And I found myself trying to describe it to my kids at times and they just don't exist anymore. Have you been to a Chuck E. Cheese recently? Have you seen them? No, I can't. I can't find one. They are still around. They're a tenant of ours. We love them. Send me the location. I'll have to- I will send you the location. You got to go. But, you know, I don't know if they've opened a ton of new stores, but they are. They're still around. And in a lot of our centers, they're doing well. But I will send you our location. There's one in Orange, Connecticut that we have that is not too far from you guys. And we'll have to get you and your family there. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's a funny one to mention, but it is, it is what comes to mind. Understood. Last question. So I'm going to give a product. And you're going to tell me what the you think the retail price of that product is. Oh, cool. So one of the top gifts for 2019 Christmas season was a picture of the Washington, D.C. skyline found on artofwords.com. What was the retail price? $29.95. $50. But thank you for playing. I always joke with my wife whether she knows like what the cost of a gallon of milk is or a dozen eggs because it doesn't, you know, in in this modern world where everybody just shops with a credit card, it doesn't seem like anybody knows what anything costs. Yeah. I see less and less people, you know, there was there was a time in, in history and potentially a lot of people still do where people would go to certain gas stations based on the based on the you know what it was a gallon and I see less of that today. I'm sure it still goes around, but uh Definitely see less of that today. So yeah, and actually that that plays into you know we see that at the store level every time we talk about raising prices, we all freak out. We think that all our customers are going to leave and never come back. But we say, gee, you know, inflation, cost of labor is rising, minimum wages are rising in every state every year. You know, we need to keep up. Our rents keep going up, and we agonize over pricing and a price increase. And invariably, we decide that gee, we just have to do it. And we'll raise our prices by 40 cents, 50 cents, waiting for, you know, the wheels to come off the bus. And we never hear a word about it. We raise prices. We change all our menus out overnight. And we're waiting for all the negative feedback. And nobody says a word. It's amazing. So now, you know, we've done that enough times where we basically have confidence that we're priced right. The consumer expects price increases or they don't notice it. And it's as simple as that. The only thing I'll tell you on that is, and that I see, 
as you start to really expand and have consistency, there are definitely markets that are more price sensitive than others. And you're in Westchester County and Fairfield County, which are some of the wealthier markets in the country. And people are less price sensitive. I think as you get into, you start to really explode this and your expansion happens, you might see some more price sensitivity. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, I I think you're right. We actually had a franchisee looking to develop a small pot of stores in Tennessee. And he said, well, what's your regional pricing in my area? And we looked at each other like, what? (laughs) What regional pricing? And he said, well, he said our labor is $7.50 an hour and the rent is nothing. You know, the rent is two grand a month. So he goes, things cost less down here. And you guys have to consider that you'd be open to changing the pricing. And we said, of course, we'll be open to it. But it was an interesting question and we hadn't really considered that. And maybe that that's because we have this, you know, our markets are, are not as price sensitive, like you said. Well, listen, Seth, it's been great. Thanks for playing my game with me. And hopefully you guys blow it off the, the cover off the ball this year and you open a bunch of stores and hopefully you still have continued success in Peekskill, New York, where we're your landlord. And listen, have a great new year, man. Thank you, Chris. You too. It's really been a pleasure speaking and I look forward to staying in touch. Sounds good. Thanks, Seth. All right. Have a good new year. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E at D-L-C-M-G-M-T.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.